0: Okay, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can come together now and to study your word, and even as your word is summed up in the words of this London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, as it's commonly referred to, we pray that you would guide us, O Lord, and that you would bless our time of discussion, and Lord, that we would understand more of our great Savior and his function as mediator, and his offices of prophet, priest, and king. We pray that you'd be with us now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're going to continue in this study, and I'd invite you to turn to chapter 8, Christ the Mediator. And um, if you have a copy of the confession, I should have brought more than three. Oh, Deepu has an extra. Okay. We began this chapter last week, and we really only got through the first two paragraphs. And those paragraphs, the first paragraph is really more introductory. It's more of a sum of the entire chapter. And then we looked at paragraph two. And the summary paragraph, and the first paragraph there, I think we should probably reread that for the sake of review. And notice how it is packed full of theology. There's so many themes that are picked up on just in the very first paragraph. And as I said, it's more of a a summary of the whole chapter. And who would be a good volunteer? Who would be a volunteer? Who is willing to volunteer to read paragraph 1 of chapter 8? Okay, thank you. Paragraph 1, yeah. That paragraph alone, I think we took about 35 minutes to um, expound and to look up some of the verses last time. Very important themes uh, that are mentioned there. First of all, it might be helpful to just define again, what is a mediator? Does anybody remember from last time? Does anybody know? Okay, go between, right? What else? Other terms. Representative of both parties, right? And that's that's an important aspect. Somebody brought up, which is important. A mediator restores peace. Right. Reconciliation. And so that's what Christ does. He bridges the gap between creature and creator. He's fully God. He's fully human. So he's able to meet those standards. And I mentioned to you that mediator I don't see as particularly an office. It's not spoken of as an office of Christ. It's more of a function. It's what he does. It's what he is. But the offices of prophet, priest, and king are certainly tucked under the function of a mediator. And we looked at some Old Testament examples of how a prophet and a priest and a king and their individual ways points to the final mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the par excellence mediator. Um, There's only one mediator between God and man. And actually, one of our paragraphs, one of the ones the Baptist adds, is very important because it speaks explicitly to the Roman Catholic teaching that Mary is a mediator. And so that's important for us to understand. And just by way of review, there's 10 paragraphs here in this particular chapter um, we're going to take three weeks to go through all of these. In other words, we'll be in this again next week. Um, but the paragraphs, the per, the paragraphs one to eight, largely follows the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy uh, Declaration or the Savoy Confession. And paragraphs nine and ten are exclusively added by the Baptists, picking up from the first the London Baptist Confession of 1644. So with that, let's move in. I'm not going to reread Paragraph 2. That's uh, also a very packed, full paragraph. But let's go ahead and um, look at Paragraph 3. And in Paragraph 3, we see Christ's suitability for the work of Mediator. And do I have a volunteer to read Paragraph 3, nice and loud? Yep, okay, Matt, thank you. Okay, so that's paragraph 3, and we'll consider a few topics under the, the suitability for this work. And first of all, the nature of his character. Notice that all all that God has, the Son, he's sanctified in holiness. He's set apart. He's not like us. He's set apart. The Father sets him apart for this work, anointed by the Holy Spirit up beyond measure, it says. And I'd like to look at a couple of verses. So Jubal, Acts ten and verse thirty eight. Uh, John, do you, you have a sword there? Okay. Um, Colossians two three. And Acts ten first. Acts ten, verse Yes. Okay, in Colossians 2, three. In
1: whom are hidden all the treasures
0: of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, now if you consider Jesus and his role during his earthly ministry, and then just think about his earthly ministry and think about the role of the Holy Spirit throughout his ministry, it's very important, isn't it? We see it from the very beginning, of the temptation where he comes to strengthen him. We see it in the garden. We see it throughout his ministry. He was certainly anointed with the Holy Spirit, sanctified, anointed with the Holy Spirit, Be above measure is the language of the confession. And then the purpose, um, all that the Father does has an express end. Notice it says here, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell. And that's jumping ahead to the Colossians verse that John just read to the end that being holy, harmless, and undefiled, full of grace and truth, he might thoroughly furnish and execute the office of a mediator and surety. So let's look at a couple more verses. Colossians 1 and verse 19. Who has that? Rob? Okay. 19 and 20, actually. And then Hebrews 7:26. 26. Deepu, can you get that? Okay. And go ahead. Uh 1, 19,
1: mm-hmm. For in him all the wholeness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him he reconciled himself
0: all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Okay. And then Hebrews seven twenty six. Confessions drawing on these verses, most certainly being holy, harmless, undefiled, full of grace and truth. And then the means of appointment to this office. Did he appoint himself to this office? Mediator? Not really a trick question. Right. Say it louder. Right. The Father does it, right? It says, called by his Father who also put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. He's not self-appointed, but called by the Father. Now, certainly in the covenant of redemption, it's a fancy term of what happened in eternity past, before Christ came, before time began, certainly there's agreement between the Godhead. Certainly all three are God. We touched on that already when we went through the Trinity. Actually, we touched on that last week, um, as we talked about the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, but here he's not self-appointed; he's called by the Father. And I'd like to look at uh, John 5:22 and 27. Matt, would you get that? 22 and 27 of five, and then Acts 2:36. Johnny, can you get that one? And we're seeing here that he now has all power and authority, as the confession says, called by the Father who also put all power and judgment into his hand. That's what we're looking at in these verses. All authority is given to the Son. He's given him authority to execute judgment. And that whole chapter is a fuller development, really, of that And at the uh, final resurrection. And then Acts 2.36 Yeah, God has made him Lord and Christ. Very important um, verse there. So he has all power and authority. So that's the suitability of the office. It's a pretty straightforward paragraph. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. That's probably record time for us in a particular paragraph. Now let's move to number four. And this is really the identity of his work. And in this paragraph, we're going to see his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, is return. All of those things are really, um, really in this particular paragraph. Does that remind you of a creed? <laughs> yeah. Okay. A couple of heads are bobbing back there. Which creed? The Apostles' Creed. Who said that? Okay. Good, Teddy. The Apostles' Creed. And so we'll read the paragraph first, and if we have time, we'll. Uh, After we go through this, we'll uh, actually read that so you can see. I'll go ahead and read this one. Follow along with me. Number four. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered. "...being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul, the most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption, and on the third day arose from the dead, with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven." And there sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. I think I'd like to read the Apostles' Creed or have maybe Teddy, could you read that for us? It's on page eight forty five if you find your Trinity hymnals eight forty five just so that you could see how it sort of follows this structure. We don't know if the writers of the Confession had this exactly in mind, but they probably did. It's a good summary. 845, the Apostles' Creed. Now, did the Apostles write this creed? (laughs) No, okay. A couple giggles, right. No, they did not. It's a summary of of their teaching. The uh, uh, early church wrote this. Go ahead, Teddy. See that there's some parallels there um, to the what we had just read, and just like in that creed, in this paragraph, and really in this whole chapter eight, we said that there's a couple things being talked about: the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this paragraph, I think they're somewhat wedded together here, and as we see the identity really of his work, and um, I'd like to look at just a few things, look at these in turn, his life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, and return, and in his life, there's something that's very important. Both his active and his passive obedience are mentioned, and it's very important, both are very important. Now, let's, um, uh, I'm going to throw out a couple verses, and I'll call on you when it's time, so again, just soliciting help. Tom, are you a volunteer? okay. Matthew 3:15 will be yours. Hebrews 10:5 to 10, Jubal. 10:5 to 10. 5-10. 1 Peter 3:18. Johnny. 1st Corinthians 15:3 and 4. You probably know it by heart, but but don't count on it, right? <laughs> okay. All right. So, some of those will be coming up in a little bit, but first of all, uh Hebrews 10:5 to 10 5-10. The idea of this—this will—I have come. It's speaking to his life. It's speaking to his obedience. It's perfectly fulfilled. He underwent punishment on behalf of unworthy sinners, and then his death. According to the confession, it's the whole man. Uh, what, what's what's a phrase that makes you think he was really dead in this that we just read in the paragraph? Remained in a state of the dead, you know, that's because you, know, you think they're speaking to some of these, you know, oh, he was just, there was a phantom, there was a crack, he was breathing, he was unconscious, you know, there's all these heretical lies and explanations, you know, worldly explanations, and the writers of the Confession make it very clear, he was crucified and died, remained in a state of dead, could have been left out, he died, died speaks of that, yet remained, yet saw no corruption. So um now let's, cons- let's consider his death in that regard and looking at Matthew 3.15. Tom? Uh, Matthew
1: 315. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it was fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness.
0: Okay, and then... That- Matthew 3.15. 3, okay. 1 Peter 3.18. For
1: Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive
0: in the spirit. So the idea of being put to death in the flesh, it's the substitution idea there, the just for the unjust. The Matthew 3.15 should have been tucked up under his life that speaks of fulfilling all righteousness. and the context there, it's when John came to baptize Jesus, and he said, no, I don't baptize you. He says, no, permit it to be so, to fulfill all righteousness, to identify truly with the people of God, Israel, at that time. And then in regards to the resurrection, he says... Um, the same body which was suffered was also ascended into heavens, That's the right hand. And then 1 Corinthians 15,
1: 3 and 4. For I deliver to you as a first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures,
0: that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Good. And that's really a, a confession of the early church there. He was. Uh, that he was dead, he was buried, and he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. And then very briefly, his ascension and then his return. I have two more verses for folks. Deepu, could you get Acts 1, to 9-11? And I will turn to the last one. So in regards to his ascension, and I think we touched on this last week, but we'll read it. For the sake of completeness, Acts One, nine to eleven. Yeah, and so really you've got, you really touched on two things there. The ascension, but then the very last phrase there is, he will return in the same way. It's touching on his return. Romans 14, I'll just read it in verse 9 and 10. For to this end Christ died and lived again, and he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? or again why do you regard your brother with contempt for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God revelation 1 speaks of behold he is coming in the clouds he is returning and he is the final he is the judge so anyway very you know it's, we're not going to take a whole lot of time here because there's a lot more deeper stuff we're going to be looking at in just a moment but paragraph 4 sort of parallels apostles creed touches on life death um, resurrection, ascension, and return. John, he saw. Uh, the the shred of evidence that they first of all, I I have the same problem. If I'm in a church and someone's and we're reciting that, like at our joint service, I don't personally say that phrase. I. Think, keep my mouth shut so you know creeds are are, um, flawed they're the invention of man just like the confession is substandard to scripture i don't think there's any i think it's a misinterpretation of is it first peter three where it talks about
1: the the
0: the very next No. no the okay, okay. That's the shred. Now, who wants to explain the shred? Why it's not that he really... That's a good question. I'll, I'll tell you what I think this means is that when he says made proclamation in the spirits now in prison... Um, who were once disobedient when the pages of God. And notice it says, in the days of Noah, right? They kept waiting in the days of Noah. It's God's testi- it's, it's the testimony of preachers and prophets throughout all ages, including Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Christ was speaking through Noah, right, as a prophet. So um, I don't think he descended into hell. But that's We're not going to go all down that rabbit trail. Somebody can... Um, How about that? Okay. Okay. As the church departed further and further from the actual apostles. (laughs) And we did talk about some of the other, the Nicene Creed uh, recently as well. All right. Now, paragraph five. This is uh, probably the shortest one in this chapter, and yet it's packed full of theology. So who would like to read this for us? Uh, Okay. Call on somebody, okay, Greg. (laughs) Number five. So, there's a lot in there. Uh, it's easy to read fast, but we're going we're gonna to slow down. We're not, this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. This is very important. This is the, the Godward success of his work. And we see here a very important theme, and it's the satisfaction of the justice of God. Okay, so we're going to take a little bit of time and try to unpack this. What does that mean? Um, there appears to be a certain people that was given... To him, uh, what do we call that doctrine? <laughs> uh, predestination. I'm sorry predestination. predestination, okay, election, and then in regards to atonement, we would call that particular redemption, right or I don't like limited atonement, but particular redemption. Actually, who would like to try to define particular redemption for you theological students? Okay, Matt. Brave man. Okay. So, very good. So, say that a little louder so everybody can hear (laughs) it. So it's effectual to the elect. It's sufficient for all. It's sufficient for a, a thousand worlds of humans if such existed. But it's only effectual for whom God designed it to be effectual. And so let's look at a couple verses. Hebrews nine, in verse fifteen. And Wes, do you have your Bible? No. Okay, you're excused. You were rushing to the hospital, so <laughs> um, Greg, maybe you could get that, and then um I'll read. John. Actually, let's let's turn to these. So Hebrews nine and verse fifteen. Go ahead. Fifteen. Does it say fourteen? Well, read fourteen and fifteen, and we'll be safe. How's that? <laughs> it's probably both. So it kind of encompasses both. So the idea of the the blood of Christ um, cleansing conscience from dead works through the living God, verse 14, but it's speaking of directly of a mediator of the new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions um, and it's particularly for the call that they may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now let's turn to John 17. John 17 as you know is the what's been called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus Christ. It's the night before He was crucified. And He's praying here. And there's some very important verses in here. I'll read verses 1 and 2. Now this is after four chapters of our Lord instructing His disciples in what areas? Chapter 13 to 16. Just... Throw out some themes, important themes. Okay, without looking, okay. So, uh, the, the servanthood of Christ, loving one another, marking who true disciples are, uh, the fact that He's coming back again, I go to prepare a place for you, He's the only way, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the role in which the Holy Spirit will function in bringing things to remembrance. Those are all themes, very important themes that have been touched on um and then, in chapter 17, it says, Jesus spoke these things. Lifting His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. What's central? What's the tone? What's the very beginning of the prayer? The glory of God. And in glorifying the Son, God will be glorified. Verse 2. "...even as you gave Him authority over all flesh..." That's another verse we could add to the previous paragraph. Remember that the Father has given Him all authority over all flesh. "...that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life." There's a particular people that have been given to the Son. The Son is commissioned to go and to redeem those people, to give of His life, to live the perfect life, to die on the cross... There's a particular people there. Now hold on, we're going to come back to John 17. In John 6, he, similar language, again, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. There's a people that the Father has given him. All whom you have given me, he says in verse 2, he may give eternal life there's a particular people in view here and then look down at verse 9 in case there's any doubt in your mind verse 9 of John 17 everybody see it actually let's read 7 through 9 now then now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you and the words which you gave me I have given them and they received them And truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Speaking of the disciples, verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, I have been glorified in them." So very clearly here, he's not. if there's any place for him to say, I just pray for every single person in the world, wouldn't it be here? It would be here, right? He's not praying. He's praying and when it comes down to the actual atonement, particular redemption as we've called it, and when it comes down to him actually purchasing through redemption a people, there are a particular people in mind. It's not as though he just shed his blood indiscriminately. That's cheap blood. That's cheap grace for everyone. And then only some believe. That's a failure. But his success, as it's set forth here, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, satisfied the justice of God. So particular redemption. And then, why is the why is the active obedience of Christ so important? And I'll define it in a minute if you don't know what that means. But why is that important? Active obedience, passive obedience of Christ. Anybody ever heard those terms? But he, needed to be he needed to be perfect. Okay, good. He needed to actually live a life. It's not as though just show up on the earth, be crucified, and then ascended. You know incarnation one day, the next day ascended. No, he actually had to live a life. He actually was truly man. Remember we talked about this uh, last week in particular, the incarnation. He had to be 100% man and 100% God. Those are vital. In order to be an effective mediator, you're representing both. He represents us before God. He represents the Father before us. So to be a mediator um, had to be both. So the act of obedience of Christ is very important. Uh, his perfect obedience is crucial to our redemption. And I'd like to read from David Dixon's book. This is Truth, Victory Over Error. And it's actually a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Why this is important is this, is actually, this was written in the time of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so it addresses the heresies and the um, uh, lies that were going around at that time. And let me see if I can find my place quickly. So for each chapter, he gives several questions, and then he refutes against so-and-so and and against so-and-so. So here on the act of obedience of Christ, he says this. I'll start up here. Had the Lord Jesus Christ... These are all in the form of questions. Had the Lord Jesus Christ, by His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself, which He, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up to God, fully satisfied the justice of the Father? Yes, well, then, do not some otherwise orthodox err who deny Christ's act of obedience to be part of his satisfaction performed in our place? Yes, they do err. Well, by what reasons? Because the active disobedience of the first Adam makes us all sinners. Therefore, we must be made righteous by the act of obedience of the second Adam. Pretty straightforward, Romans 5, number 2. Because Christ not only offered Himself to the death for us, but for our sakes, that is, for the sake of the elect, He sanctified Himself, that is, He gave up Himself as a holy sacrifice. John 17 and verse 19. For their sakes I sanctify Myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And then number three, because it behooved Christ to fulfill all righteousness. Multiple scriptures speak to that. Number four, because we stood in need, not only of the expiation of sin for saving us from eternal death, but for the gift of righteousness, for obtaining eternal life, according to the pre, to that precept and demand of the law, do this and thou shalt live. And therefore Christ is not only called our ransom, but the end and perfection of the law to everyone that believes, Romans 10. That is, the aim of giving the law of Moses is thereby men being brought to the knowledge of their sin, they should fly for refuge to Christ and his righteousness, and as he hath perfectly fulfilled the law for us. I'll skip number five. Well, no, I'm going to read this. Because number five, because the passive obedience of Christ is not in itself merely and purely passive, but His active obedience did challenge the chief and principal part of it. Principal part of it. Then I said, Lo, I come! In the volume of the book, it is written of me, quoting Psalm thirty forty rather, which Jubal read from Hebrews. With these words, our Savior declared His willing obedience to accept and to undergo. And to execute the meteorship by God imposed upon him. And according to Isaiah 53 and verse 7, he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. And then finally, number six, because whole, because whole, W H O L E, because whole Christ was given to us with all of his benefits. Otherwise, if only his passive obedience were imputed to us, it would follow that half Christ. Only were given to wit Christ's suffering, but not Christ doing these things which please the Father, taking away our sins, saving the death only, but not bringing righteousness. But Christ has not given and born for himself, but for us, that he might bestow himself wholly upon us by doing for us what we could not do and by suffering for us and what we could not suffer. And he goes on and speak to the Socinians and other People at error, but I hope that helps to sum up why the act of obedience of Christ is so important. His passive obedience—that's usually what people think of. Well, okay, he died on the cross; he paid for my sins. Modern evangelicalism in our day—I guarantee you—that's kind of where they think about. Rather than satisfying the demands of God's holiness, His righteousness, His just indignation against sinners who deserve hell, Christ really did satisfy that. Now, that's an awesome thing, and we're going to spend a little bit more time in it. Any questions on these things? I thought I saw a hand over here, but I could be wrong. Okay. Somewhat straightforward. Now, the word here in the paragraph, procured reconciliation, um, has the idea to bring about by care or by pains its covenantal language. Um, Now, Samuel Samuel Waldron has a a good portion in his... um, I shouldn't say a good portion. This is actually one of the shortest chapters he has in his commentary on the confession of faith. But um, he has a little section on the necessity of the atonement. And I want to look at that for the rest of the time. Why was the atonement necessary? We've kind of been talking about it. But why was it necessary? Because (laughs) Because we were sinful. Uh, think a little bit deeper than that. Right. If, if Think back to chapter 7, just kind of touching on chapter 7, which was what? Of God's covenant. If God's going to covenant to save a people and purpose to save a people, he must provide the means for those people to actually be saved, for a ransom to actually take place. The covenant of redemption God chose to save and the atonement becomes an absolute necessity now let's look at a few other verses here and i'd like to look at hebrews chapter 2 maybe we'll just turn there together hebrews 2 and verse 10 And the aspect we're looking at here is it's necessary not just because he's purposed to save a people, but because his justice, his righteous character cannot allow men to be saved in any other way. So that's the aspect that we want to look at here. Uh, verse 10, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And what does that mean to perfect the author? How is he the author of their salvation? It's a fascinating word. It means to... I'm sorry? Okay, invented one way to, to touch on it. Oh, well, of course, yeah, he wrote it. Okay, you're thinking... Maybe I'm too... Down. It's the idea of an originator or a pioneer or the captain of our salvation. Uh, after the men's camp out, the boys and I went on a hike, you know, and I, I've always talked to them, you know, it's men blaze the trail. Men have a, re, a responsibility of leadership and leading their families, leading their wives. And, and it's fascinating as we hiked, the boys were telling me how they really remembered, like, they remember that from, like, years ago of me touching on it from here and there. And, and so I was able to reinforce these things. With, this is Jesus is the one. He's the originator. He's the one that blazed the trail for salvation. He perfected it. He's the originator. He's the captain of our salvation, as some translations have it. In verse 17, just turn the page if you have to. Therefore, he had to become like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There we have it again. We looked at that last time in regards to the Incarnation. He had to be made like His brethren. And then, Tom, Galatians 3.21 for me. John 3.14-16, to 16, Deepu, would you... And again, we're looking here at God's righteous character that cannot allow to just wink at sin or to overlook or to just declare forgiven. There has to be an actual atonement made, an actual redemption. John 3, verse 14 to 16. Verse 14: The uh, so must the Son of Man. There's no other way. It's not well. It's a good idea, or you know, this is one way. He must be lifted up, just as that serpent was lifted up. For that everyone that looked on that serpent by faith was healed from being smitten by being bitten by snakes. So too he must be lifted up. And then Galatians 3:21. Okay, so in other words, righteousness isn't earned, right? There had to be a real atonement. Moving on, the justice of God makes the atonement absolutely necessary. Romans 3, a great portion we'll be coming back to. For, it says, For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus so he has to be, the justice has to be satisfied. And here we see God being the just one and the justifier, the one that is justifying the one who has faith in Christ. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, and sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. There's that divine interchange, double imputation, our sin upon him, his righteousness upon us. So the justice of God makes that exchange absolutely necessary. His righteousness, his act of obedience has to be applied to us And then our sin laid upon him, his passive obedience of actually paying for our sins. So in summary, when we think about the atonement of Christ, it's not Pilate that killed him, right? It's not even the Jews necessarily that that killed him. Ultimately, who killed him? Well, okay, in addition to that, who? The Father. It was the Father, right? And it says in, in Isaiah 53, the Lord was pleased to crush him. The design of the atonement goes way back before the creation of the world and the the whole plan of redemption and the the covenant that we looked at in chapter 7 as it sets it forth. It goes all the way back, and that was the design, and it was ultimately the Father. Yes, our sins, the Jews, Pilate, were all um, means that the Lord used, but ultimately the Lord was behind it. Now, let's talk about how is God's justice satisfied, just taking this a step further There's a fancy word, propitiation. You mentioned it yesterday in your devotional, I think. What does the word mean? Satisfaction of... Okay, yeah, justice being satisfied. What are some other words? Satisfaction of wrath, right? The wrath. Um, To pacify, right? That's another word. To atone for. Um, appeasement necessitated by sin and I think for the sake of time we won't look at all these but let's look at First John chapter 2 some of the modern translations of course do not have uh, the word propitiation in them it's not a word that we use all the time 1 John 2.2 2, And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also those of the whole world. The whole world needs to be taken in the context of the letter. We're not going to go down that. But the idea that he himself is a propitiation for our sins. He satisfied God's wrath because of our sin. Chapter 4 and verse 10, same thing. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins to come and to satisfy God's just wrath that our sins deserved. So, a real substitution had to take place. He had to stand in our place. Yes? Sorry? Sorry?
1: Is the propitiation
0: for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Yeah, it does say that. Right. I just said we're not going to talk about that because I'm going to have that's a whole lesson in and of itself. So I said it has to be taken in the context of the letter. Something you can do, Tom, is to read that letter every day this week and come back this next Lord's Day and take it in the whole context. Okay. And we'll comment on that. It's not the whole world, every person in the world. World never means or doesn't often mean every single person in the world. So you have to read read it in its context and the use of the word. So in regards to the satisfaction of the justice of God, a real redemption had to happen, a real substitution. He really stood in our place and bore the full penalty that God's holy wrath demanded. In Galatians three thirteen, Johnny, if you could get that. And I'll turn to Romans. And we'll get ready to end here.
1: Yes. Hang a, a
0: real redemption. A real satisfaction. He really did become the curse for us. Romans 5. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. He died on behalf of the ungodly would be a valid translation. That's pair in the Greek there in verse 6. So a real redemption, a real standing In our place, um, other verses could be cited, um, including Ephesians 5, verse 2. I'll just read that. It speaks to the idea of substitution again. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to God. And I love how this verse ends as a fragrant aroma. The Lord was well pleased with the sacrifice of Christ in our behalf. He really did accomplish um, a effectual salvation for everyone that He prayed for, and John's never seen everyone that He actually did die for. Well, that's uh, as far as I think I want to go today. Lord willing, we will finish the last six paragraphs next time, but. Paragraph 5, very short but yet packed full of theology there. Any questions from what we've uh, covered this week or last week um, in chapter 8, Christ the Mediator? Or any thoughts or just add on to kind of what, I know we're we're moving fast. It'd be really easy to just take weeks and weeks and weeks on some of these themes, but yes, Jubal. No no he he's actually he was a supporter of the Westminster it's in I think he wrote it probably 15 or 20 years if I remember right but it was in the latter 1700s the Westminster was completed about seven, 1644 he wrote it later in the 17th century not 1700 so about 1660 I believe I mean we can look in there after the words but it's right there but yeah he's so he's a contemporary So it's real easy to read modern commentaries on the confessions, but they're reading a lot of history into it, but to read some of the sources that were available then to speak this is why this doctrine was formulated like this, and it speaks against these errors of such and such, it's pretty incredible. And there's about forty errors listed in the back that was prevalent in that day. So I commend that to you. It's just been republished. It's been out of print for a long time. It's been republished about five years ago, I think. Truth's victory over air a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Since the Westminster is so much aligned to the London Baptists, it's a helpful source, one of many sources. Okay, no other comments. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we could look into your word and even to look into this summary of your word, this Confession of Faith. Lord, we pray that you would knit these things to our heart. Pray that we would be men of doctrine. Lord, These sometimes it's difficult to understand. Sometimes it's difficult to grasp the many themes um, and deep doctrinal truths that are contained in your word. We thank you for a confession such as this that seeks to systematize it so that we can um, understand it in a better way. Lord, we pray that you would bless our study as we continue to go through this, that we would be uh, well-grounded in theological truth. In Jesus' name.